Hello, and welcome to MGMA Small Talk, where we discuss issues facing practice administrators across the healthcare world. I'm Shannon Geis, staff writer and editor at MGMA, and today I'm speaking with Tom Walsh, the chief strategy officer and a founder of Cardinal Point Healthcare Solutions. He is also on the faculty at Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, where he earned his PhD in health policy. He has a background in physical therapy as an orthopedic clinical specialist and assisted with the development and launch of a multidisciplinary spine center at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Tom is here with us today to talk about his new book, Navigating to Value in Healthcare. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Shannon. It's good to be here. Great. So first, can you just tell us a little bit more about your background um, and in particular your experience with value in healthcare? As, as you pointed out, my background, original background, is as a physical therapist. And coming out of college, um, I went into private practice. And this was the early 1990s. And there was a lot of buzz going around about um, you know, terms that I'd never heard of in any of my training, from uh, preferred provider and um, health maintenance organization, managed care, all part of uh, what some people were calling um, Hillary care at, at the time. Um, and the older partners in the group, this, it was, they were really nervous about this because um, what we were hearing was that the quality of our care was going to somehow be graded and we would get paid more or less depending on how we did on those metrics. And nobody knew how we were going to be measured. Nobody knew how we were going to do um, and I was a nerd. You know, I was reading a lot of um, a, a lot of medical journals and was reading about patient reported outcomes, particularly in spine problems. Um, there was some work coming out of out of England, and so I just typed up on an old typewriter on the front piece of paper, front of a piece of paper. You know how bad your pain on the back. How well can you sit, stand, walk, lay down? And I started handing this out to every patient that I saw each time I saw them. And I'd have them come back. When they came back in, I could go over it with them. And over a few months' time, I quickly was able to learn my average patient was 48. They were coming in with pain scores slightly over 8 out of 10, with 10 the worst. And their function scores in the low 20s were 100 is normal. And I'd see them six or seven times, and their pain scores would go down, and their function scores would go up. And they'd, they'd be discharged. But... Meanwhile, the prescriptions that people were writing, the doctors were writing, were for 12 visits. So we were leaving six to five to six visits on the table. And that didn't seem right. We could have continued to have the patients come back and you know, played cards or told jokes or something and um, you know, run off our bill. But we had data now about how we were doing. And we thought that, that was, the data were pretty good. And so we invited the local insurance reps to our facility, and I used an, an overhead projector, um, if you remember the, back in the day, mm -hmm. to put up the average scores for myself and the average scores for my colleagues and talk through what it was like to use these with our patients. And we said, you know, if you find somebody who has better scores, you should direct patients to them. But we think our scores are the best, so we should have a preferred status and so that worked out pretty well our, our clinic grew and i got really excited about patient reported outcomes and as i continued to read these journals i found an ad for um 
an Ivy League medical school that wanted to start a spine center that used patient-reported outcomes. So I got a Kodak camera and took pictures of my pieces of paper and sent them off with my skinny little resume. And lo and behold, I got hired to help design a spine center at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And we based the design of that around using these measures to help us understand the, the, the value of the care that we were providing from the, pa- the value from the patient's perspective. Basically, we wanted to know how well we were delivering care. Um, and we wanted that data to be our own. We, we didn't want to have somebody else grading us in some way that we didn't understand and we only received the feedback um, once a year or every six months. We wanted to be doing it ourselves. And so we did. That's really, really great. Um, so um, why do you believe value is so important um, as an aspect of healthcare, regardless of the current reimbursement systems? You know, the title of my book is Navigating to Value, and value is a bit of a buzzword, but mm-hmm. um, I've never really thought about the type of work that I do or the things that I write about as being in response to any, um, you know, how to get a quick win with the most recent um, health policy change. In my mind, it's been more about how do we understand how the how our patients are perceiving the benefit that they receive. How are they doing measured by what matters most to them? Mm-hmm. And then how much does it cost us to deliver that? Because within an organization, if I can increase the outcome scores that the patients are reporting while keeping my costs the same or lowering them, well, now the people who create buzzwords will tell me that that means I'm delivering value, that I've got better outcomes for the same or lower cost. But take the buzzword away and just just think about what we're talking about. It's how do we identify what matters most to patients, improve our ability to help them with that while we're being mindful of our costs of doing it. That approach might be defined, right now people might call that value, but it's really kind of a timeless principle, right? It's deliver a service that that addresses a need and try to do that um, while monitoring your own costs. It's pretty easy to improve outcomes or um, deliver high quality service if you can spend as much as you'd like, right? But to try to do that while you're um, staying aware of the cost of delivering care is is more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, so some organizations, like the ones that you've been involved with, have been focusing on value for a while. But a lot of organizations are really just beginning to, to embrace this. Um, and so um, how would you recommend that they get started doing that? Another good, another good question. I think, and it's a common one with, with the organizations that we work with. It's like, where do we start? There's just so much. And the, the way that I write about and what I've seen um, be helpful in a number of places is to take a look at the publicly available data uh, about your facility. Um, hospital compare, physician compare, websites through CMS, those are good. 
to understand what your facility looks like to outsiders who are trying to get a sense of how well it's functioning. So what what are the your rates of, of uh, specific procedures, like spine, um, spine surgeries, um, hip and knee replacements, the, the rate of admissions for ambulatory care sensitive conditions. Find out what um, your metrics are like and then compare those to best in class or national average or your five competitors in, in your neighborhood or the top 10 academic medical centers. You can, you can select the competitor, but take a look at how you're doing in comparison to others. When you do that, you'll find that there are some places that you're doing really well and you might not have even known that. So you feel good about that. You'll also um, find that there are places where you're not doing quite as well. Or you, you might be doing around the national average and around the same as your local competitors, but you might be still substantially below best in class. Mm -hmm. And so you identify these places where um, there's room for improvement. Oftentimes there's more than one mm -hmm. at a facility. And so then it becomes, okay, of the, of the places where there's room for improvement, where do we have the best team set up? The, the, is there a, um, someone in our organization who'd be a good champion for this, who's, who's shown an interest in this? And when you find some alignment between um, a targeted condition where you, can, where you know there's a need for improvement and you have people eager and um, wanting to be involved, then that's a home run. And when you're talking about getting started, and you've talked a little bit about the idea of like benchmarking and, and data, but I feel like uh, some people are a little um, maybe nervous about the idea of value because it feels vague or feels harder to measure. Um, what are some of the ways that um, you can really break that down into measurable data or, or information? Yeah, so so the trend is, is more, and tor more toward um, using patient-reported outcomes, and a lot of specialty societies have um, they'll help with that. CMS is um, creating pull-down menus of, of um, different questions that you can ask patients in order to get a sense of how their perception of the care that you're providing. Those are the um, types of metrics that really start to make value hit home. We're not talking about having patient-reported outcomes replace clinical outcomes like an A1C level or a blood pressure. But those clinical outcomes don't always resonate well with, with patients. They don't always resonate well with um, how well the patient is able to function. So by asking directly, we find out what's meaningful to patients, what they value, and then work with the patient to try to, in, to design um, jointly designed treatment plans that address what matters most to the patient. That's the key, f key part about value, and that's where um, CMS and others are um, putting those questions online so you get a sense of what they are. Um, they're surveying your patients after they've left your clinic. They're creating scores 
that help them understand how well you're doing. And the, the, the approach that I recommend is that practices start creating systems and processes to collect those scores themselves so that they can review them more regularly. They can create a process to, um, you know, in the Spine Center at Dartmouth, we had monthly meetings to go over the data. How did, here are all the clinicians, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and the outcome measures, how, the, how our patients are doing. By reviewing those more often, you start to um, make progress in talking about, well, looks like my colleague Joe has outcomes that are a little bit um, better in this area than mine. Well, what's Joe doing? And Joe may say, well, it looks like this Tom guy has outcomes that are a little bit better than mine. In some other area, what's Tom doing? If we can create a learning environment, not a blame environment, but a learning environment where we're all trying to learn from one another, then we can improve those scores. And when those scores are improving and your costs are staying the same or you can lessen them or at least slow the growth in them, that's the definition of value. And with the payment reforms that are happening, you will be paid more when you can demonstrate that type of improvement. That's great. Um, so one of the ideas that you talk about in your book is the significance of microsystems. Can you explain what you mean by that and sort of um, elaborate? Yeah, sure. So I guess I should talk about what a microsystem is um, for people who aren't used to the term. And the way that I, I think of it, you know, in healthcare as in a lot of other places, that work gets done in small teams. In the original microsystem um, idea, you can best think of that from a fast food standpoint. If you walk into a fast food restaurant and you're hungry, you walk to the counter, there's one person to take your order and exchange money and enter data into the system. And then there's also a person um, to fetch the drinks and the fries, and there's a person that makes the hamburger. And so the person that makes the hamburger, the person that, catches, that, that fetches the drinks and fries, the person who's in charge of data and money, and the hungry customer, that makes a microsystem. And it's important to realize everybody has their own roles on that. And if you were to just try to um, get everybody to work harder and faster, that, that wouldn't work at all. They just run into each other more often. So you think about how do we optimize the function of this system? When you optimize that system, you can then place more of them side by side and you have a restaurant. And you can replicate the process, go someplace else, and pretty soon you have a big chain of restaurants. So that small unit is the microsystem. And in healthcare, that comes down to, typically, it's a, a receptionist, the patient, the data about the, the patient, um, some type of, of, of assistant um, to help move the, help the patient navigate through the system, um, and a provider. And in our spine center, we considered our microsystem to be the patient, the receptionist, um, a physical therapist, a non-surgical provider, a surgical provider, and a behavioral specialist. That was the smallest replicable unit that 
that we needed to be able to provide care for the vast majority of, of um, patients that we would see. Now, understanding what that unit is, where you're working, is crucial because w whether the idea about value comes from the top of an organization where a leader is saying, we must do value, go, or there's a um, hard-charging, you know, go-getter who has a bright idea that's on the staff, says, I've got an idea I want to do. And so the idea could come bottom-up or, or it could be forced bottom-down, but the microsystem is going to do it. And so that's where you need to understand how those people are going to be working together, how the data flows between them, how the, the communication happens within that unit, what's the shared language, the shared knowledge they need, um, how do they all get on the same page about patient reported outcomes, how do they understand the, the cost of their cost of providing care. Once you understand the players, then you can map out the current process of care. With the current process in mind and building the shared language and shared knowledge, you can then start to think of, well, what would a future state look like? Are we using everybody on this microsystem team to the best of their ability, the, the height of their license? Are we, is each step in this process occurring at the basically the least expensive place that it could that it could occur you know the OR is more expensive than the ER the ER is more expensive than the clinic the clinic's more expensive than somebody um, you know being able to do things on their own at home so are we using our space wisely are we using our personnel wisely and are we doing things as efficiently as possible and those things, the, the personnel and the space and the time, are the cost drivers, right? So if you can optimize those and create a future state with the process of how the microsystem works, while you're measuring outcomes and trying to improve outcomes, that's how you get to, improve, to um, higher value. And being able to document that to yourself and to anybody else. Yeah, that's really great. Um, it's interesting to really break it down in that way. Um, another topic which you actually just briefly mentioned um, that you discuss in your book is the idea of integrating behavioral medicine specialists into the care pathways. Um, and why do you think that is important? So we learned of its importance when we started in the Spine Center. Um, part of the surveys that we were asking patients asked for them to um, self-report their mental health status, where zero was you know, the worst possible and 100 was you know, happy days forever and ever. And the survey that we were using was normalized so that the average score for people would be a 50. And so the way a normal distribution works, the standard deviation was 10, so um, most people were going to be between 40 and 60, mm -hmm. and 95% of people would be between 30 and 70. Well, we were seeing a lot of scores below 30, way, way more than any statistician would have expected. So that was raising, you know, that caught my attention. It's we, we should be seeing about 2.5% of our population with scores that low and 
um, when I started thinking it was high and then we monitored it, it was closer to 15%. Well, the biggest driver of low self-reported mental health among patients with chronic pain complaints um, is anxiety and depression, depression um, primarily. And it's oftentimes undiagnosed. And we had a behavioral specialist embedded in our team because we anticipated some of this. And we knew that um, behavioral therapy training for patients with anxiety and depression, it's got a pretty good track record, several meta-analyses showing that it's, that it's beneficial. So the next question was, of all these patients that are coming in with um, self-reported mental health scores way below normal, what percentage of those patients are getting to see the the provider with the best training to address that complaint. And it turned out that it, it, it was less than 9%, even though we were designed to do it. And that's unacceptable. We've got effective care, and of the patients that need it, less than 10% are getting it. So we tried a lot of interventions to get the patients with low scores to be seeing the behavioral specialist. We tried to tell other providers about the value of the all the research behind um, behavioral therapy. We tried to give them scripts of how to talk to patients about it, and nothing really seemed to work. What eventually worked, though, was um, patients were entering their scores on a computer, and so we had the computer, if we just programmed it, if the score's below a certain level, page the psychologist, and then the psychologist knew to come to the waiting room and introduce themselves to that patient. You know, I'm Tom, the behavioral therapist. Come come on in. Help me understand some of the answers to the surveys here. Uh, to the patient, this all looked like standard operating procedure. They didn't know that anything different was going on. But we aligned the, the provider type with the patient that needed that provider. And so then the, the referral rate for um, behavioral therapy went up close to 90%. Not, it, it wouldn't ever be 100% because some of these patients already had therapists or um, you know, didn't want that type of help. Now, that research was done in the late 90s and 2000s. Since then, more and more um, conditions, not just chronic pain, but more and more conditions have um, found that undiagnosed or undertreated anxiety and depression are big drivers of the cost of care for patients who currently have the worst outcomes. So when you're trying to modify care paths, pathways to improve outcomes and decrease cost, identifying what the patient's real needs are is key. Oftentimes that's undiagnosed anxiety and depression. Um, and then aligning the care with that need, which integrating behavioral therapy is, uh, is the way to do it. The patients that are hardest to improve or slowest to improve often have multiple comorbidities. And our cost drivers are usually localized to a handful of patients that are consuming more resources than, than the rest. So it becomes important to identify what those patients need. And it's 
oftentimes um, some assistance with uh, mood disorders and cognitive um, behavioral disorders. And I think it's really interesting the the idea of responding to the survey that they're taking. I haven't heard of that specific um, sort of method before, and that's that's really interesting and um, really useful. Thank you for saying that because. <clears throat> In the book, I outline, um, I use three examples to, to show how this works, but the most places, if, they're, if they've heard at all about patient-reported outcomes, they think of aggregating them, you know, averaging them, clumping them up, all of the patients who receive treatment A or all of the patients treated by provider Y. Um, and once you have a system for collecting that information, you can actually bring that data into the exam room when you're interviewing and examining the patient. And that speed, this patient reported outcomes at the point of service speeds up the identification of what matters most to patients. So you can align the care they receive more rapidly, which in theory, should lead to better outcomes with less time taken. We can't say that that's definitively true, but that's the idea. Um, so what do you believe are some of the most important attributes um, for a successful team? So when I think of, when I think of the team, I, I try to think of a whole organization, right? Because undoubtedly, the, the people in the microsystem delivering the care, there are some attributes there. Um, the, the best teams from that standpoint um, tend to consist of people who are agile and adaptable. They feel that what they do makes a difference, right? So they don't have a sense of learned helplessness. They haven't gotten cynical. Um, they feel like their actions make a difference. They're able to... Um, step up and, and be pretty assertive and um, take charge, kind of a type A when it's needed, but they also can step back and listen and do what's asked of them, almost like a type, a type B, so they can switch back and forth, um, not stuck in, in um, one personality type. So if you can hand pick your team, you like people with that type of agility. What do you see as some of the challenges ahead for practices um, in the coming years? Anything in spe uh, specific that, that you um, see as being a challenge? It's important to just um, be upfront that it is challenging, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah. on, on the face of it, if we think um, all that we've got to do is identify what matters most to the people that we're caring for and then help to achieve that, so measure how we're doing with that, understand our costs of delivering care, and be aware of it. Can we improve the outcomes that matter most with while keeping our costs the same or lowering them? We do those two things, improve outcomes, same cost or lower, that's better value. So that sounds easy, but what it takes to be able to measure and talk about all of the things that are 
included in those statements is hard. Implementing patient reported outcomes, the systems to do that, whether it's a web-based portal or an app uh, or even, even paper, it's disruptive to the workflow the way that it is now. And providers haven't been trained how to use them. Mm-hmm. And usually when you start doing it, if there's not a good explanation of why and how it's going to be done, you know, there's a lot of resistance. Overcoming that resistance is a challenge. Having said that, the organizations that do overcome it and do adapt using patient-reported outcomes, particularly if they can be available at the point of care, providers in those type of situations start to love them. It's almost like from a you know an orthopedic surgeon doesn't like to go see a patient before reviewing the imaging studies, whether it's an X-ray or an MRI. Once people get used to having these patient the patient-reported data before they see the patient, so they can then discuss what matters most with the patient. That's almost like the image, an imaging study to, of what matters most. You, you feel less prepared when you don't have that, when you go in. But getting it to the provider, getting the patient to do it and getting it to the provider before that appointment and syncing it all up, that's a challenge. So we have covered a lot of really great uh, information today. Uh, is there anything else that you would want to add or make sure to mention? No, I, I guess I'm interested from your listener's standpoints. Of, I'd be interested in hearing their stories of what, what's worked, what's been hard for them. So anybody that'd be interested in sharing their story with me, I'd love to hear it. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I appreciate it. All right, Shannon, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more information about Tom's new book, Navigating to Value in Healthcare, check out our episode page at mgma.org slash podcasts.